Well, it's been a couple of weeks in a row now of wonderful guest speakers. We had uh, Dan Bolgi from Bellingham Covenant two weeks ago, and then Jeff Flint uh, preached an awesome message last week. Uh, but I'm excited also to be back with you and, and back in our series called In the Beginning. Uh, it's our third year in a row now of working through Genesis, and we've actually got one more fall season. Next year we'll be in Genesis as well. Uh, and Genesis translates the Hebrew word for beginnings. It, it tells the story of the beginning of creation. It tells the story of the beginning of God's plan to rescue that creation. And starting in Genesis 12, we learn that God's plan involves the choosing of a family of Abraham and his wife Sarah. God's plan is to bless this family, Abraham and Sarah, uh, with land and with uh, wealth and knowledge and descendants. Descendants that are going to outnumber the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore. And it's through this family and these descendants that God is going to share His love and His blessing with all the nations of the world. Two of the key words in Genesis then are land, which is referring to the promised land, and seed, uh, or descendants, or children. So, oh man, if you just were to go through Genesis and circle all the times in your scripture where it says land or descendants, which is really just another way of saying seed, that you're going to see that circled a lot. Those are two of the main words. And if land and seed are two of the key words, then two of the key motifs or themes throughout Genesis are the perilous nature of land and seed. It seems like every story so far has been, uh-oh, they're not going to have kids, or uh-oh, their land is going to get taken away. So that's one of the motifs. And the other is God's faithfulness time and time and time again in rescuing this family. Chapters 12 through 22 contain story after story after story of the land or the seed being in jeopardy. Twice, Abraham almost loses Sarah to foreign kings because he's trying to save his own neck and he lets them think that she's his sister so he can be saved and um, she almost gets taken to be their wife. It's not until Abraham is a hundred years old that he even has his first child. And by the time chapter 23 comes along, Sarah has died with one child and no land. It was actually her burial plot that Abraham bought that is the first piece of the promised land that this family will lay claim to. And that leads us right up to chapter 24. Besides being an important story in the Bible, Genesis 24 is, frankly, it's just great. It's just a great story. It's uh, 67 verses long, and unlike much of Genesis, which is very terse. I mean, there's not a lot of detail and adjectives in, in the Old Testament. Genesis 24 is just this long story where often whole complete sections are repeated like two and three times. It's full of detail and drama and romance and... It's, it's just exciting. In fact, it's one of the jewels of ancient literature, whether or not uh, you believe the Bible or not. Out of the 67 verses of Genesis 24, God never is recorded as speaking one time. And although God's speech is absent, He's mentioned 17 times. It's almost as if what God lacks in words, He makes up for in guidance and providence. 
We actually have a special treat this, uh, this evening. I'm going to invite the children forward. And they have been working uh, downstairs in their, in their children's worship time on a visual representation of Genesis 24. So they're going to come up and share a little bit with us. Very proud of here, and they want to share with you. So maybe if we turn the picture around go, towards the audience, we can do just that. Perfect. So kids, can I ask you a few questions? Okay, Sophia, can you tell me who this is writing these camels? Wait, this one? Yeah. This one? Yeah. This is... Um, Eliezer. He is trying to find a wife for Isaac. So where did he end up going? Who did he find? He ended up going to this well where a bunch of girls were coming to get water and he ended up Finding Rebecca. Okay. Jonathan, do you remember what you asked Rebecca to do? Will you water me and my camels? And Elsa, what did Rebecca do? Rebecca said, do you want me to water, I'll water your camels and, and I'll water you. Yeah. Did you help people out? Yeah. <laughs> All right, give these guys a big hand. <laughs> Thanks, guys. That was great. And just to reiterate for the rest of you, I know um, you may not have children in children's worship, but one of the things that we're trying to do as a church is have them uh, have the children looking at the same Bible stories that we're going through up here. And that's so that as families we can have touch points with our kids and have hopefully similar conversations uh, together at home. So, they did a great job of introducing that. But what I'm going to do is we're going to focus on the first 27 verses this week. Next week we'll do the rest of chapter 24. And I'm going to even break those those 27 verses into two sections. So, uh, let me read the first few verses, first 10 verses of, uh, of Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old and advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge over all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Now suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from which you came? Then Abraham said, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from there. 
But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Well, then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Lord, we pray your guidance as the, the servant prays for guidance in the story. Uh, we pray that you would reveal to us what it is you are uh, wanting us to see. What character of you and character uh, of these people, Lord, you want to uh, implant in our hearts. Take this story that just seems maybe novel or interesting on the outside and show us uh, what it is you want to reveal to us on the inside. Amen. Well, the story begins with a statement about Abraham's age. And in Old Testament biblical literature, usually when that happens, it's the beginning of an obituary. Now, Abraham doesn't die until the next chapter, so it's almost as if uh, the writer's trying to tell us Abraham's about to die, and he only has a little plot of land... And he has, his son has no wife, meaning no descendants. So again, we feel that peril of the promise almost dying out with Abraham and Isaac. Faced with his own mortality, Abraham needs to get his son hitched. And so he asks his servant to travel hundreds of miles to the place where Abraham's family lives. The whole scenario probably seems weird to you. It seems weird to me. In our culture, uh, you know, uh, young people, you, you start dating. Maybe your parents never even met the person that, that you're dating, and you show up one day and say, hey, uh, this is the person I'm going to marry. Uh, sometimes it happens that way. Uh, but in Abraham's culture, like many cultures uh, in the world today, marriages were arranged. And in the ancient Near East, it was often uh, you wanted to marry in your family. I know we think that's really weird nowadays, uh, but even a, even a first cousin was, wow, that's a great thing to do because you have these little villages that you live in and a clan, and you wanted to maintain your name and your reputation, and so it was a, a common thing for people to marry cousins and second cousins and kind of keep it in the family. Now, as we know from Genesis chapter 12, Abraham and Sarah were called by God to leave their homeland and their relatives and to go to a land that God would show them. So I want to go ahead and throw that map up there, Bethany. What we have is uh, Ur of the Chaldeans here, like my laser. Yes. So back in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and his family out of Ur... And they travel, 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 and they settle in Haran for a small period of time. That's where most of uh, Abraham's uh, uncles and, uh, hang out. They, they stay there in Haran. Uh, but Abraham, Sarah, some servants, and his nephew Lot travel past Haran. They go up this direction all the way down into the Promised Land, get in some trouble, head to Egypt, almost loses his wife. You know those stories, bam, 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 over there. And so that's nearly a thousand miles. And Abraham is calling his servant, Abraham, who now lives in this area, is calling his servant to travel with ten camels and all this wealth through perilous journeys all the way back to this area. He's actually calling him to go to a place called Nahor, which is about right there. 
where some of Abraham's relatives were living. Thank you, Bethany. Now, Abraham is too old to make the journey. He's over 100 years old at this point. He doesn't want Isaac to go back to the promised land. I mean, how tempting would it be? Wow, here's all my relatives. I'm just going to hang out here. Life would be so much easier. So he wants Isaac to stay in the land that God promised him. He doesn't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite girl because uh, they're polytheists and they're idol worshippers. And so he doesn't want that temptation uh, for Isaac to become an idol worshipper. And so he sends his faithful servant back to Nahor to find a, a wife for Isaac from his own family. Now the servant, I mean the smart guy, he wants to know, listen, I'm going all the way back here. What happens if no woman wants to go back with me? I mean, ladies, think about this. You have this stranger showing up saying, actually, I'm not the guy who wants to marry you. It's this, my master's kid and he's like 500 miles away and I've got some camels. Uh, would you like to marry him sight unseen? A little bit weird, isn't it? And so he wants to know, well, what happens if I go all that way and no one wants to come back with me? Should I then bring Isaac with me? And Abraham says, no way, not a chance in the whore would I want you to take my son uh, back to this place. And here's where I see an example, I think, of Abraham's faith having matured here at the end of his life. You know, I think the old Abraham would have probably tried to manufacture some kind of results uh, to this problem. See, God gives them a promise of land and children, but when those things don't happen for Abraham and Sarah right away, Abraham sleeps with Sarah's slave girl, Hagar. How did that turn out? That wasn't too good for his marriage. I wouldn't, guys, I wouldn't recommend that one. Uh, he, he twice told foreign kings that Sarah was his sister to save his own neck. And I think that the old Abraham would have been desperate at the end of his life to just get his son some wife, any living, breathing female. I think the old Abraham might have told his servant, sure, bring Isaac back. Do whatever it takes to find him a wife. And that way we can make a family and seize the promise. But this Abraham, at the end of his life, is schooled in a life of failures, in a life of trying to make his own luck, make his own results. And he's learned to trust the living God, who time and time again has bailed him out. And he says, by no means are you to take my son back there. He goes on to say that the Lord, the God of heaven, who made a covenant with him, he would send an angel before the servant. And if no woman is willing, then just you're, you're free from your oath. What faith. What faith. Not trying to force things to happen. I wonder, is there a time in your life maybe right now, where you were faced with a tension between two good things or, or possibilities, different options that you had to, to make happen. And maybe you're trying to discern God's will right now. What would it look like to relinquish control over the outcome of that decision? Relinquish control of the outcome of that decision to really the only one who has any control of the outcomes. Maybe just something to consider. Now what I love about Abraham's response is his resolve that it's God who's ultimately 
in control. He mentions an angel going before him. But you know there's no mention of an angel in this whole story? Isn't that interesting to you? It's almost as if the, the mention of the angel is there to heighten our awareness that there are no mere coincidences. That God, His messenger, however it all works behind the scenes, He's in control, and the servant doesn't have to worry about it. That if He finds the wife, yea God, if He doesn't, you're free from your oath. But I am resolved to let God be God over my life, over the situation. After all, it's God who made the promise in the first place. It's on Him to keep it. And so the servant takes a solemn oath by placing his hand under Abraham's thigh. That's just a really clean euphemism for saying he put his hand under Abraham's reproductive organs. I know that's kind of weird, but think about it. He's making a promise about posterity, and so he's literally, they would do this on very solemn oaths. You put your hand there, uh, as a, uh, basically as a way of saying, Servant, you have in your hands the future of my line. You have in your hands the task of going to get a wife that's going to carry on my line. So, yeah, the Bible's full of euphemisms. You know, uh, Adam knew Eve. You know, come on, how did the kids come out of that? Just knowing somebody, right? It's, yeah, talking about sex. And so here, here, yeah, the servant's putting his hand under the thigh, which is in Hebrew, regals, which is oftentimes... uh, yeah, it's, it's his stuff. It's his reproductive area. But, uh, so that's a very solemn promise that he makes. <laughs> now I want to move on and read to you the rest of the story. So, the servant now has shown up in Nahor. And this is what it says. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now, may it be that the girl to whom I say, Please draw, uh, let down your jar so that I may drink. And who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Well, before he'd even finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. And the girl was very beautiful a virgin, and no man had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she'd finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they finish drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all the camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. And when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels in gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your house uh, to lodge us in your father's house? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who she bore to Nahor. Again, she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed to room and lodge in. 
Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. You know, for the rest of the story in Genesis 24, Abraham recedes into the background. In fact, the two main characters now are most unlikely characters. The one is an unnamed servant. The other is a woman. Both of these stations in life, servanthood and womanhood, were about as low on the social pecking order as you could get in the ancient Near Eastern world. And as I was li living in this story over the last week or so, one word just kept coming out to me as God was, you know, there's so many different ways to preach this. And the word that kept coming out to me was servanthood. Servanthood. So taking the story backwards, we see servanthood exemplified in the character of Rebecca. Abraham's servant asks her for a drink, and she not only gives him a drink, but she volunteers to water all of his camels. Now, each camel could drink between 20 and 25 gallons of water. Rebecca's water jug suggests that she would have to descend a set of stairs into, to access the spring water. Her jug would have been made of pottery and probably held a few gallons. Anyone out there ever just filled up a five-gallon bucket of water and, and tried to lift that? that? That's hard enough. Now, imagine that made out of pottery, and you're hucking that thing. There's no handle, so you're like doing your shoulder thing. That, that's heavy. In fact, Robert Alter calls this scene almost Homeric. You know, Homer's epics, Iliad, Odyssey. You see these incredible feats of strength and endurance and in battle. He says this scene, it's almost Homeric in nature. Like this woman, in order to feed or water all of these camels, is making tons of trips. Like the average man, it would just completely wipe out going up and down with this huge thing. So what she does here is just such a, an amazing example of hospitality. It's almost a legendary feat. She's a servant, and though her beauty and her youth and her purity are noticed, um, it's after her servant's heart is revealed that Abraham's servant realizes this is someone special. You know, there's a lot of pretty women of marriable age who had not known a man, but this woman, she is a servant at heart. We're going to get to look a lot more uh, at, at the person of Rebecca next week, and I'm looking forward to that. But let's go back and consider the servant of Abraham's perspective. What a fool's errand it would have been uh, for him to go all that way and find Abraham's son a wife. Basically, Abraham's saying, I want you to travel hundreds of miles through perilous lands to find a wife for my son, but you can't actually take him with you. Now, who is this servant that would do this? Uh, some people say it's uh, Eleazar. Uh, it could be. He's mentioned in, in the 15th chapter as uh, one of the main servants of Abraham's household. But we don't really know. And in fact, I think it's significant that he is nameless in the story. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But it's significant that this servant is nameless because he has such an important role in the story. 
Abraham's servant shows his quality of faithfulness and loyalty and his servant's heart. He's smart and he's resourceful. Once he gets to Nahor, he knows where the ladies are going to go. Because every evening it's custom, the ladies come out to the well. So he has the camels kneel down and he's just sitting there. He's like a smart fisherman who knows where the fish hang out at a certain time of day, right? So he's there, he's got his hooks in the water. And he's just written for the ladies, all the lovely ladies, to come out to the well, right? So he's smart and he's resourceful. But more than being intelligent and resourceful, this servant is a man of faith in the living God. In my message on, on Genesis 23, we talked about uh, what it is to leave a legacy of faith behind. Do you ever think about where the servant got this kind of faith? All those years of following Abraham and Sarah and watching Abraham make crazy mistakes and watching God bail him out of those crazy mistakes. That's where his faith comes from. I want you to take a moment and think about a person, any person in your life, whose faith has influenced you. And it doesn't have to be some big aha thing. Can you think of someone whose faith has influenced you at some point in your life? Now I want to encourage you, I know this is outside of some of your comfort zones, but if you could turn to a neighbor and just share that person's name, maybe a little bit about it. Let's just take a, a, a pause in the message and do that. Share a person uh, whose faith has influenced you. Introverts, I apologize to you. I will take your scorn after the message. Um, and I know that can be a little bit uncomfortable. But you know, there's something that emboldens us in, in our life today when we remember God's faithfulness of yesterday. And, and that's just such an important discipline for us to get in the habit of telling those stories of faith to one another. So Abraham's servant is in position for when the women come out to the well. But what is he supposed to do when they get there? You know, he's traveling with wealth, with gold and jewelry and these camels. Uh, he could just find some woman, any woman, and say, Hey, listen, I'm here on an errand. I really want to get back to my wife and kids. Um, I'm rich. You know, master's rich. Do you, do you want to marry this guy? And you, you, he could have just found anybody. He could have just done it uh, as a transaction. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't bring the gold out and all that kind of stuff. He waits and listens. He prays to God. He wants what is best for Abraham and his, for his family. Listen to his prayer. O oh Yahweh, 
the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing at the spring, as if God didn't know where he was standing, but I'm standing at the spring and the daughters of the city are going to come out and, and may it be that to the woman I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, that, that if I ask that and the woman then says, drink and I will water your camels also, may she be the one that you appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I'll know that you've shown loving kindness to my master. I love this prayer. By the way, this no-named servant is the first person in the Bible to ever pray to God for guidance. We make decisions every day. Is it a frequent occurrence for you and I to ask God for guidance when we're making choices? I'm not talking about what clothes to wear each day. That might matter. <laughs> but, uh, you know, where to invest our money, our time, how to treat people in our businesses, um, in our civic duties, all of these kind of things. God is interested in the, even the, the things that we think are pedestrian and everyday, even in how to find a mate. So I encourage you to listen to this uh, no-named servant who asks God for guidance. And I love how raw this prayer is. There's no pretense. There's no fluff. There's no mediator. It's just this, this lowly, unnamed servant, and he just talks directly to God. And even though his prayer is a little bit naive, like, okay, God, so if she says exactly this, I'll know it's you. I mean, but at least he's asking for guidance in the first place. And I love that the servant's heart is revealed in this prayer. I want you to notice something. Notice how he asks that God would grant him success, but that his success would be God showing loving kindness to his master. Let me say that again. The servant is so devoted to Abraham that to him, Abraham's success is his success. Did you catch that? That's countercultural. You know, we live in a culture that's constantly telling each of us to strive for our own success. We have primetime television shows like American Idol and America's Got Talent and America Doesn't Have Talent and there's all kinds of these different shows where, you know, everyone's encouraged to get their 15 minutes of fame. And it's really neat to see all the talents out there, but everything is kind of communicating to us that you strive for you to be successful for your own glory. You know, in some streams of the church, the gospel is communicated as though you and I are consumers. So uh, let me get my game show voice on. Hey, if you believe in Jesus, you'll get forgiveness of sin, a clear conscience, good potlucks at church, and the grand prize, and all expenses, trip paid to heaven. And then the fine print. You might also be asked to help with children's ministry from time to time. And there's some mention, there's some mention of dying to self and taking up your cross to follow Jesus in the scripture somewhere. <laughs> Following Jesus is not only about what we can get from Jesus, right? In fact, those benefits of forgiveness and joy, 
Those are kind of actually side benefits. Following Jesus is actually about recognizing the real fact that Jesus really is king. And I guess what that means is, is that if Jesus is really king of the universe and of the world, then we are not and no one else is. And so when we are not recognizing and following Jesus the king, we're rebels against the king. I mean, it's really, really, it's that simple. So it's not just about, hey, great, I get all these side benefits. It's about reality and truth and living, living in the truth, that recognizing that Jesus is the risen king. You know, Jesus really does say things like, you need to die to self in order to find life. He does say, you can't follow me unless you pick up your cross daily. He does say in John 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. And if I then am the Lord and the teacher, and I washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, part of this following Jesus is being a servant. Being a servant. Jesus, um, or, sorry, Abraham's faith, uh, servant is faithful. There's no way that he could have grasped the magnitude of his job in finding Isaac a wife. But because he carried out this role with faith and with diligence... Isaac would meet Rebekah, and they would have Jacob, who would then have Judah, through whose line David would be born, through whose line Jesus would be born, whom, through whom we would be rescued. So, we wouldn't even be here, in a church at least, believing in Jesus, if it weren't for this servant's faithfulness to the little things. In our culture, servanthood is almost despised. Loyalty is for golden retrievers and suckers. Right? I mean, for gullible people. Everyone knows you've got to keep your options open. Sure, you signed a contract, but everyone understands if that other team offers you more money because you've got to do it for your kids because $10 is not enough. $12 is what you need. Sure, you said some wedding vows, but this other person that's new in my life, oh, they make me feel so fulfilled and interesting. And that's really what we're up against, and yet Jesus calls us to serve Him. How? In the little things, in the day-to-day. And I know I've used this quote actually multiple times in sermons, but it's just so good, uh, from Leslie Newbegin, who says, Your neighbor is the agent authorized to receive the love you owe the master. Your neighbor is the agent authorized to receive the love you owe the master. Our friends are the agents authorized to receive what we owe the master. Are we loyal to our friends? Do we keep their secrets in confidence or do we spread them all over the place? Do we serve them? Do we pray for them? Our friends are the agents authorized to receive what we owe the master. Our spouses are the agents authorized to receive what we owe the master. Are we loyal? Are we loyal even when they're not looking over our shoulder at what's on the computer screen or how we interact with people of the opposite sex? Do we serve them only when we are going to get credit for it? 
I'll tell you, a real temptation just, just for me with the new baby is, am I going to wake up and help out or pretend I'm asleep right? until I get poked to help out? Come on, you other dads, you know that's a real one. Your spouse is the agent authorized to receive what you owe the master. Our employers and employees are the agents authorized to receive what we owe the master. Do we use our time efficiently? Or do we sabotage the business by wasting time and resources? And on the other end of that, do we treat people with dignity and respect? Do we pay a livable wage? The people we know who don't know Jesus... Are the agents authorized to receive what we owe the Master? Do, do we share the good news of Jesus with other people? Do we talk about Jesus? Do we do the works of the kingdom? Do we love? The church, the people in the church, the church is the agent authorized to receive what you and I owe the Master. Do we participate by consistently gathering with the body? Do we share the load of ministry? Do we speak constructively about the church rather than nitpicking it and bringing it down? You know, there are so many aspects involved in servanthood to Jesus, but I want to take a few moments uh, to recognize some of the stumbling blocks, that, at least that I recognize, um, to being a loyal servant. And I think first is the fear of being overlooked. You know, many people like to be recognized for their service. I, I would say everyone likes to be recognized for their service. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think the problem is we want that recognition now. And Jesus had some pretty strict warnings in the Sermon on the Mount about that. He says, you know, some people are serving God and serving people to be noticed by other people. And if that's your whole shtick, then that, that's all the rewards you're going to get. But what he says is, is be a servant, even if it's behind the scenes, even if you don't get recognized up front, because your reward is tucked away in God. Your reward is, is imperishable. It is, it is what you're going to receive from the Lord. Make His glory our success. And then nothing can take away that reward. Second, I think each of us might struggle a little bit with fearing for our security. If we make our lives really about serving Jesus and really about serving others, what happens if we actually start looking like Jesus? A little misunderstood? Maybe poor? Maybe not having you know, all the latest and greatest? And yet Jesus calls us not to worry about the basics. He says our Father already knows our needs. Instead, seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. Seek to make Jesus' mission our mission. And all those other things will be taken care of, added to us. Third, I think we fear intimacy. If we really take a step out and are servants to other people, they're going to get to know us. And we're going to get to know them. So we keep relationships oftentimes at an arm's length. We church shop. We keep our options open. But what we can't escape from is the sense of emptiness we feel when we do that. And the reason is because we're hardwired for intimacy. We all really crave to be known and to know other people. And fourth, I think the problem behind all the problems 
is we really don't believe in a good master. I wonder if we don't believe that a good master actually exists. Since there's no perfect human role model, we learn the hard way to calculate our relational investments. We're always poised to be let down. It's like being a Seattle sports fan. It's like, you know, they start doing good and you just know, when's the shoe going to drop? Right? And we can approach relationships in that way. You know, and we just, is anybody really good? Could there really be a good master that we can count on? And what happens is we carry that world view into our faith, into our relationship with God. You know, I mentioned earlier that Abraham's servant, while being the model of loyalty and having a servant's attitude, he has no name in the story. And there's another servant in the Bible with no name. We read about him all over in the prophet Isaiah. From the 53rd chapter, this is what it says about that unnamed servant. Surely our griefs he bore... And our sorrows he carried. And yet we ourselves esteemed him as smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And God says about this servant, My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And the servant as the New Testament makes clear, is Jesus himself, God in the flesh. The master who calls us to follow and serve is the master who became a man and who left the comfort and safety of the heavenlies. The master who calls you and I to follow and serve is the master who healed people and washed their feet. The master who calls us to follow and serve went to the cross despising the shame to take on your sin and mine. The master who calls us to follow and serve is the servant who defeated death, rose from the dead, and now reigns. Amen? And it's because of this master who serves that you and I are now free and empowered to cast out our fears so that we may follow him and serve. We are free to serve a better master than we have ever known or thought possible. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I'm thankful that uh, because you became a person, a, a human being, you put on flesh and dwelt among us, that you know firsthand all of the insecurities that we feel. Uh, you yourself prayed uh, on the cross of prayer of dereliction, of, of separation from God. You know how we struggle to believe that you could really be as good as you say you are. And yet the evidence is just stacked up in our face that you, you left the way that you existed and you became a, a human being and that you, you made yourself vulnerable as a baby, as a man, as a person misunderstood and scorned, ultimately a person who was conspired against, wrongfully crucified. And you rose 
and you reign and you bid us to come and trust you. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you enough to let go of all the grasping of trying to maintain our own status, maintain our own facade of a life. And help us to serve with gusto and passion. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see your glory and your success as our success. And we pray this because only you can do it in us. So have mercy, Lord. Amen.